I embraced white supremacy without within about six months uh, after being sexually assaulted without any, uh, I didn't have any meaningful or reliable connections with adults in my life. Today's episode is sponsored by HEB Curbside and Delivery. When life throws you a loop, HEB Curbside and Delivery is here to help. We shop how you shop, so you get exactly what you want. Order today at HEB.com. HEB Curbside and Delivery. It's never been easier to shop HEB. Welcome to Our Voices Matter podcast. We have an extraordinary guest today with a story um, that you will not soon forget. This is someone um, that I've been wanting to talk to actually for a while when I heard her story. Her name is Shannon Foley Martinez. And Shannon, um, I just am going to let you give our audience the real sort of Cliff Notes version of your, your backstory. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me on, and thank you for the work that you are doing. Uh, it's so crucial. The very shortest version uh, of my 45-year-old life <laughs> uh, is that I grew up uh, in a very typical, uh, upwardly mobile middle-class family uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. I have an older brother who's two and a half years older than me. Uh, from the outside, we looked very much like every other family, uh, you know, in in growing up at the same time as us. It was like Stranger Things without the supernatural monsters. Um, but inside our home, uh, things were very dysfunctional. Uh, I never really quite understood uh, the rules and the boundaries, and they were always changing. Um, and I remember feeling like I was the black sheep in my family from my very earliest memories, that I didn't really quite belong in the family where I had been born. When I was 11, uh, my family moved to from just outside of Philadelphia to just north of Toledo, Ohio. It was, uh, I might as well have moved uh, to, you know, another continent for the culture shock that, that it brought with um, and so I, I ended up uh, having this sense of not really belonging in my family expand out into the greater world. And while I made friends, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the connection that they all had because they had all grown up together. At 11 years old and on through my middle school years, um, I did what most teenagers do. And I was grappling with who I was, who I wanted to be in the world. What was the identity I wanted to try on? Who was I going to be as a human outside of my family? And I knew pretty, pretty soon that mainstream culture was never going to be a place where I could posit a meaningful identity. And I looked to counterculture. Initially, that was actually like anti-war 1960s counterculture. Um, and I uh, read a lot of the literature and books that, that were out there. Uh, the first wave of uh, post-Vietnam literature was coming out. Um, and one of my very favorite books was actually the autobiography of Malcolm X. But I loved the revolutionary nature of the ideas. I loved the power behind the ideas. I loved the idea of having this strong sense uh, of identity. Uh, and I would go on to uh, find skateboarding culture and then uh, into the punk scene where, you know, there were a whole bunch of other people also grappling with uh, their identities and not feeling like they belonged anywhere else. And so we found community with one another. 
just before uh, I was 15 years old, I ended up going to a party. Um, and uh, when I got there, I started drinking. And by the end of the night, I would be uh, raped by two men at that party. They were white men. Sometimes people ask that. Um, and uh, Why do people ask that? Well, because of the trajectory that my story takes okay. um, and how, uh, you know, how my life manifests itself. People. So that, that night was kind of the, I guess, one of the critical points that led you to a life where you embraced white supremacy or I embrace white supremacy without within about six months, uh, after being sexually assaulted without any, uh, I didn't have any meaningful or reliable connections with adults in my life. I knew from growing up in my household that if I had told them what had happened, that they would be more upset that I had lied about where I was going and that I had been drinking at this party, then they would be upset that I had just been sexually assaulted. And so I didn't have anyone to tell. And as we all know, that unaddressed trauma doesn't dissipate. It festers. And the way that it festered in my case was to have a huge sense of self-loathing. And at the same time, I was filled with rage and not like teen angst, not like I'm, you know, bickering with my mom or whatever. I mean, I was so angry all the time. I wanted to fight all the time. Um, I, I, I needed somewhere where I could place and put that anger and get it up out of me. Um, the angriest people on the periphery of the punk scene where I was were the uh, the, the neo-Nazi white supremacist skinheads. And I think the anger that I felt resonated with the anger that they portrayed. And I started spending a lot more time with them. Um, I would start reading the, the books and literature and consuming the music of the white power movement. Uh, and slowly, uh, some of the, the resistance that I had to using racial epithets and racially charged language were broken down. And it was also like an introduction to some of the conspiracy theories and the ideas surrounding, uh, the white power movements. Uh, interestingly, even though I have been out for 25 years, nearly all of the, uh, all of the ideas that are out there, uh, are exactly the same as the ones that we hear about were 25 yes, years ago. Exactly the same. So let me ask you a couple questions here about the the messaging that you were receiving as a, as a young person who was obviously in search of herself and in search of a community and in search of love. There was a message that you were getting from from this white supremacist movement that resonated with you. What was that message and why did it resonate? I think, uh, obviously, I didn't know this at the time, that I didn't understand what was happening uh, at the time and why I found resonance uh, with this uh with these ideas and with these people. But I think I felt so deeply disempowered that um, I didn't even have control over my own body, right? That I felt so deeply disempowered that making people afraid or being offensive felt very much like power to me. It felt the closest I could get to empowerment. And part of how that plays out uh, in a gendered way, because people are like, your women don't go on to become violence-based extremists. But for me, I wasn't super successful 
outside of the movement in like my dating life or with boys or whatever. I was never super popular. I was never like unpopular, but I, I didn't really understand that space. But inside the movement as one of very few women, that it was the closest thing that I could get to any sense of sexual empowerment. Because I was one of just a few women, I could go out with anyone that I wanted to. And my voice could be taken seriously um, inside that movement, even though, I mean, it's a movement based on the objectification, dehumanization uh, of people perceived as weaker. So women did not fare very well. And I had very violent relationships oftentimes while uh, I was inside the movement. Um, and there were very complicated sort of gender dynamics, but as one of very few women inside that movement, it was the closest I felt like I could get to power because I'm coming from such a deeply disempowered place, um, that, you know, that I have that going on. And then, and also, um, it was, I, I even remember having the conscious thought that like, they've got to take me in, like who's worse then the, like if they, they the won't Nazis, take me right? In, then... Like they have to. Wow. Um, they're kind of the, you know, it's kind of the bottom of the barrel there. And all I have to do is hold this ideology. And I hated everything. I hated the whole world. And so projecting my own self-hatred out onto specific groups of people actually made this really ineffable hate that I didn't understand and this rage that I felt and projecting it onto particular groups of people mm-hmm. made it more manageable and smaller. And so there was this, this means in which it was almost a relief um, that I could make the hate that I was just consumed with smaller. And I think so- something that I learned much later on, um, just a uh, last year, I had spoken at, it of, at an event, and afterwards I was uh, eating dinner at this pizza restaurant, and I went into the bathroom, and as I came out of uh, the bathroom stall, there was uh, a black mom uh, in there wiping off her little girl's um, face, because she was, you know, the way two-year-olds are, covered in pizza, <laughs> and she's wiping off her face, and I was like, wow, that's so cute, like, look, and that's so adorable, and then I thought... Wow. When I was in the movement, I would have perceived that tender moment as a threat. I would have looked at that black mom and baby in this endearing moment and been like, they are my enemy. They are a threat to me. And what might you have done? uh, And I mean, I might have sneered or, you know, or made a comment to them. Um, I, in that particular situation, I probably wouldn't have like inflicted uh, physical violence. Um, I mean, who, but you know, who, who knows? In retrospect, maybe I maybe I would have. But I realized in that moment, as I was like, "Wow, I would have perceived that so differently." That I had this this uh, insight that I was like, I really think that so much for me was that I was looking for. Um, an easy explanation for why I felt afraid and under threat all of the time, that my world felt dangerous all of the time. I never felt safe. And rather than uh, looking, you know, having somebody help me navigate the trauma, um, both the developmental trauma of my early childhood and the acute trauma of the sexual assault um, that, uh, that I suffered, that I 
just looked for why my world felt this way all of the time. And, and that there was this, yes, yes. And that part of the, part of the way that trauma uh, affects the brain is that very often people who are traumatized look to binary thinking. They look to black and white worldviews to make easy the work of navigating and negotiating a very complex world. And so you see, obviously there are much more pro-socially acceptable means that this manifests in. Maybe it's sports fanaticism or being, you know, an exercise addict or, you know, less pro-social ways, but not hate-filled ways like addiction and things like that, that there's this obviously like a spectrum of, of the way that people will negotiate the world like that. But that I was looking for this easy explanation um, and was very vulnerable to the messaging uh, that, and you know, and that that I needed to you, understand. Did you kind of fall into it, or were you approached? Did someone were you recruited into the movement? I was not recruited into the movement, and uh, and I think that this is a, uh, that this is a misconception too. I think um, in some ways. Uh, in our current, in the current state uh, that we are in, that it is appealing to think of recruiters out there uh, targeting our children, because then we have someone that's an actual like bad guy in this scenario. But the truth of the matter is that it's like a self-perpetuating ideology, and that people who are already in uh, the movement are self proselytizing all of the time because you can't help but be your hate filled self everywhere you go and in your interactions. And so, um, you are, everyone is sort of recruiting all of the time and in the online realm, uh, which, you know, was not part of my trajectory inward that, in the online realm that people are, if they're on playing, uh, you know, a live, a live game or whatever, they can't help but be who they are in the middle of that game and will, you know, spout off some of their ideology or rhetoric or whatever. And if there are people that have these vulnerable need sets that collide with those ideas, that there is a, a very high likelihood that they will find resonance with that. Um, at least, enough resonance to inquire further. Um, so I, I didn't, I was never actively recruited that this was something that, you know, it was on the periphery, uh, of, uh, an ecosystem that I already existed in, in the punk scene. And now, you know, in, in today's world, there's the online ecosystems where people interact and engage and this stuff is going to be on the periphery of that. So how old were you when you, when you joined the movement and, and, and how old were you when you left? I, um, I was, uh, like 15 and a half, uh, when, you know, when I joined, there isn't like a hard date. There wasn't, um, there wasn't a, a real initiation every time <clears throat> because I would travel all over the country during this period. Um, and if I, uh, interacted with a new sort of like crew or whatever. Um, there was often like what was called a booting in. So you so yeah, would, I was say, how do you, what, what happens when you, when you, when you all of a sudden say, okay, I'm now part of this white supremacist movement. Is, is there an initiation ceremony? How, how does that, how is it structured and how does that world work? Well, it would depend on, it would depend on, uh, what group it was for me. Um, my parents, uh, moved from, uh, 
just north of Toledo, Ohio, to uh, to Georgia in a, a town where there was a military base. And uh, I it was it was the 80s late 80s so uh you know i would hang out at the mall and coming in from the base all of the time uh were other skinheads and white supremacists um that you know this is not a new problem that we face with having uh overt white supremacists uh in the military like a very large number of my contacts i actually met because they were stationed where i lived in the army but because of the way the movement was then and it was in a very physical space that the way that i dressed and you know the the haircut that i had uh the patches that i wore that i had identified markers, uh, much like gang signs where I could, where we could easily identify one another. So it would happen simply, you know, organically. Like I see you sitting over there eating your, you know, piece of pizza in the mall food court. I'm going to go talk to you. Um, and then you just start hanging out. Yeah, together and then you would and just start, start hanging out together. And- yes, and there were and there were some there were a couple cases during that time where um, there was like a little more structure in some of the groups that I interacted with, and there was what you know like sort of like an initiation where basically you would, you know, you would have like a minute or whatever of getting you know of everybody hitting you or kicking you with your with their boots or whatever, and then. You, you know, that was like proving that you were like in the in the group uh, or whatever. If you were kicked with boots, is that what you said? Yes. Explain, please. So, I mean, when I was when I was uh, in the movement, like I was um, uh, part of uh, the skinhead movement it, for the early part uh, of my trajectory. As I was in longer, and I would leave uh, when I was just about twenty. Um, that the movement was morphing to that, um, that there was a greater emphasis on actually better blending in with the rest of society so that you could operate, uh, in a white supremacist way inside military, police, civil society. Um, and at the same time, uh, we were also morphing towards uh, a more militaristic bent that we spent time out in the woods uh, learning tactical weapons training and, uh, you know, sort of this preparation for the impending race war that we were sure was coming. So interesting that you, <clears throat> excuse me, that you frame it that way. So I would, I would guess just based on what you just said, that when we started seeing, uh, so when Charlottesville happened two years ago, you probably weren't surprised. No. Were you? No, because not at you, all. Because you knew it was there, and it was just a matter of time before it became in plain sight. Yeah, and well, and I think um, I honestly think that a lot of it has been. In your mouth, I think I, a lot of it has actually been in plain sight for a long time. Um, Charlottesville was uh, the first time uh, that there was mass organization of disparate groups. Now, in the wake of Charlottesville, I think um, we were in the face of lawsuits uh, and in the violence uh, that erupted and uh, in, you know, in response to the overwhelming grief of uh, Heather Hires's death, um, that there was a splintering that actually happened. That if you look at uh, 
the the movement such as it is uh, as people that are you know that where their egos are fractured and where people are feeling deeply disempowered and that's part of the draw in or whatever there's always infighting that erupts that there's always this grappling for power within the movement and that those alliances fracture and as somebody else you know gains more uh, exposure or media exposure or whatever that there are jealousies and rivalries and stuff and so the movement actually began to fracture uh, after Charlottesville which is problematic because um, it actually I think increased the willingness to utilize violence that um, that regular people saw like, oh, well, being organized and part of mainstream politics, which was very much the the strategy of the, those that are associated as like alt-right, that a lot of their stated uh, purpose was to mainstream uh, some of these ideas, which they've actually pretty successfully done that um, far-right commentary, I mean, far-right uh, ideas are echoed even by mainstream um, and relatively um, middle of the road conservatives. That you hear conspiracy theories on, you know, on on network news coming out. Uh, so, okay. So what are what are we as a society missing? Um, and particularly the, the the leadership. Well, not I don't want to say just the leadership, but all of us in terms of how we should confront this at this moment in time. Um, coming from, from your perspective, what, what is it that we're missing that we ought to be doing? I think um, part of, part of my, my story as well is that um, I have seven kids. Um, my oldest is uh, just about to turn 22. Uh, and when I uh, had him when I was 23 years old. Um, I was faced with like, how do I help people to thrive? Um, and how do I help them to never look to hate or violence as the answer to any of life's problems or challenges, right? So uh, a lot of my viewpoint is informed by my own trajectory in uh, and then my subsequent healing and uh, lifelong amends making that I'm doing, but also about helping my children to thrive. Um, and I think one of the things uh, that we we need to do um, is to not scapegoat white supremacy out onto those bad people out there that are doing these things. That is an extreme expression and it is a violent, you know, a violent expression of that ideology. But we, when we do that, we place white supremacy as something outside of us. Um, me, uh, as a white woman, uh, in America, like I have got to, um, really examine, uh, how I, still operate inside a white supremacist system that even in, un, you know, even if they are in unconscious ways that I uphold the systems of white supremacy, benefit from them, um, and often cause harm, uh, and do a better job of understanding the, that I have work to do for the entirety of my life dealing with, um, my whiteness and, 
the privileges and the the power that that affords me and utilizing that power to better build equity and to elevate and amplify and center other voices um, and not projecting white supremacy as a problem out there. But it is a problem that we all live with inside, that we live in a white supremacist structure that has been codified and reinforced systemically. And so all of this is happening inside of that. But at the same time, recognize that the people who are going to find resonance with the violent expression of uh, you know, that this very overt, uh, violent expression of this ideology, that they're going to be people whose real basic need set isn't being met. And so I believe that beyond food, shelter, and clothing, that we all have, uh, all humans have the basic needs of, uh, giving love and being loved of, uh, of, needing to be truly seen and truly heard and to have a meaningful connection with something greater than themselves. As a parent, you know, I know that there's so much pressure on families and we do not have family leave. Um, most of America does not have uh, the ability to spend significant time with their young children because of financial pressures and we don't support them, but we have got to, so systemically we need to better support the cohesion and connection of connection and with families connection, and that connection, yes. connection and, the, and with one another and in our greater communities that if you don't feel like you're part of something bigger, if you don't have that meaningful connection to something greater than yourself, that you're is a positive you, because right. it's your need, right. like me, my need set was really broken and I found that need to be met in this really broken and very awful way mm -hmm. um, that that is something that we have got to cultivate for ourselves in our communities and certainly within our families that no chore is more important um, even if it is essential it's not more important than making sure that you connect with the people in your family and helping them build connections in our communities what what was the catalyst for you leaving the movement, turning things around? I mean, we're sitting here having a wonderful conversation. When you were in the movement, we would not have had a conversation like this. No. What, what might that conversation have been or how would you have responded to me? And then why did you decide this was not the life you wanted for yourself? Um, uh, yeah, I, pr I mean, we probably would never even be having this conversation yeah. while <laughs> in any way, um, tw you know, 25 years ago. So, um, you know what, before you answer that, I want to share something with you. Um, so when I was, when I was a news anchor here in town, uh, and this was in the probably early to mid nineties, I actually, um, had a skinhead write me some really nasty horrible letters, threatening letters. It was so bad that I actually ended up um, having, we got the FBI involved. Um, I had security following me home at night for quite some time. Um, the FBI officer went to the person's home and the father answered the door and um, Conf said, you know, the officer, the FBI agent said, you know, I'd like to speak to your son. He's been sending these threatening letters to Linda Laurel. And, um, you know, the, the, the letters, you know, call her a nigger. And 
he said, well, isn't she? And he wouldn't bring his, you know, it was, it was that kind of stuff. That was one of the most difficult times of my life. And when I think about that, and I don't think about it often, I had, but I, I thought, you know, having this conversation with you that, um, I wanted to share it. I've never shared it publicly, but I wanted to share it because that is the, the kind of talk and the kind of action that can start with something, just a threatening letter, and then it moves into Heather Heyer being killed because I was seen as the other. I can see the tears in your eyes when I share this. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking? Just, I, I'm sorry. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't say it for, but no, <laughs> for I, that reason, but thank you. It could have thank been me that, that I, I ended up living in Houston uh, where I disengaged. Um, it, it could have been me, and, uh, and I'm sorry that... I am sorry that, that. that. you know, and, and, um, that's a very explicit way that that happens that happened in your life, but that I am sure, uh, being the object of, uh, dehumanization has happened many, 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 many times over your life as a black woman living in America. And, and, and I'm sorry, no one should have to feel afraid simply because they are who they are. And, you know, here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this country is that we're having this conversation right now, okay? And um, there aren't many places where, where we could do this so openly and honestly. And it's so important for us to share our respective stories with each other I give you so much respect for having the, the courage to stand in your truth and not be afraid to share it, all of it, the ugly parts, as well as the really beautiful parts. You're clearly intelligent and articulate and passionate and loving and all of those things in your life could have been so different had you chosen not to leave that life. And at the same time, I have the ability to, to be able to express to you and to everybody who's watching and listening to this how hurtful, how hurtful words can be. And you said it so beautifully that we all want and need the same things. We all want to be loved. We all want to have a better life. We all want to have connection. We all want to feel like we belong. And we just have to be open and honest enough to share with each other to get there. So I, I really thank you for, um, for having that kind of courage. I really do. Well, and thank you for, for sharing that, that story with me, too, that um, I think... Uh, we get so immersed in our own struggles, realities, or whatever, that we often don't understand while they're happening, the impacts and the very real pain that our actions may cause. Um, 
that we're only focused on our own struggle and we don't understand how our singular struggle um, is part of a greater whole. Um, I, I, you know, I, I came to understand much later um, that not only uh, had I chosen to deal with uh, the pain in my life by dehumanizing other people, but that in doing so, um, that I dehumanized myself. And that it isn't just a matter of hurting you, which is awful and not okay, but that I was hurting myself by immersing myself in this life, that I became less than human because I put my empathy on complete check. I was very highly empathetic before I became part of this movement. Then my empathy was pretty much turned off while I was in there, that I was only immersed in my own pain and trying to, in you know, spew out as much pain out into the world as I could and shut my empathy off. And I didn't, I didn't, I would not, I would not have even recognized that writing a letter like that, which it could have very easily been me. Um, I would not have even recognized how hurtful that that would be to you. And then as I left the movement, once again, I became very empathetic and trying to understand the pain of people. And because my life is what it, what it is, that I feel like I have the responsibility of offering that empathy and compassion to people like me or other manifestations of people like me um, who really, really need it and need someone to listen to the story behind the story of their hate-filled lives. Because you might choose to do that as a personal choice, but it is irresponsible of me to ask you as a black woman to extend empathy and love to essentially your abusers and those who inflict violence on you. So I, I try to love bigger and have more empathy so that those who do not make that choice and are not in a position to do so, which is okay. And they, and again, you might choose that for yourself, but asking and putting that responsibility to you to like love the white supremacists is, is irresponsible and hurtful and quite frankly wrong. Um, it might be a means for us to heal should you make that personal choice. But for some people that is not that is not their choice and it is okay. So I try to be in that space offering that. I hear you. I hear you. So I choose love. I choose love. I choose forgiveness. I choose empathy. I, I choose life. And, um, so that's, that's my choice. That's my choice. And as I said, I have great um, respect for you. Um, you know, we're doing this podcast after I just watched you participate in a panel discussion in a room filled with people who want to understand um, the violent extremism that's taking place in our midst and how we can combat it. And um, 
so much of what you had to say to the audience and so much of what you're sharing here now with with the OVM audience is it's just it's all about humanity. And I I see, you know, where you've come from. And um, I, I give you a lot of um, respect for, as I said a moment ago, for taking your story and sharing it. I know you do a lot of speaking um, with young people. Um, one, of, one of the things I'm curious about is what, what you said to your children as you were raising them about your past and how you helped them understand that this was not the way that they should go. I, um, uh, in addition to, uh, to having been a violent white supremacist, uh, and being someone who was sexually assaulted before, uh, I had my oldest son. I also had two other babies that I gave up for adoption. Um, I was young. I didn't, you know, I was just, I, I didn't want to poison them by being their mother because I was still very not okay. I didn't, I, you even though you I, weren't equipped I had, I had left the white supremacy movement, but I was still very unhealed. Yeah. You had a lot uh, of healing to do from, uh, from the things that I had done and the things that had happened to me that led me to the choices that I made. Um, so when my oldest son was born, uh, I made a conscious choice to uh, be radically honest and that I knew that uncomfortable conversations were coming later in my life um, with my children and that I would just start it by being really open from the very beginning talking to them about uh the their you know half siblings that uh that I had given up for adoption uh talking to them being very open about my past um and then uh one of the amazing things and uh something that I, I that I that I didn't understand is the that my willingness to share the worst things that have happened to me and the worst things that I have done allows other people to feel safety to share their worst things that have happened to them and their worst things that they have ever done. Because nobody is just the worst thing that they've ever done. Nobody is just the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And I saw the power in transparency and that it afforded people with a, with a space that they could unburden themselves often from very debilitating shame that they felt. Um, and I realized in terms of my parenting that it is that it is crucial for me to uh, let my children see that I am a work in progress and that failure is something that we can learn from and even really catastrophically bad even hurtful choices um, will not make me unlove you because I am a work in progress as well. And now that I have uh, a couple children who are uh, adults, um, 
when I was, I mean, I was 23 and 25 when I had them. Um, and I was still really in the midst of learning a better skill set and learning communication skills and learning how like not to yell at my kids when I felt out of control or whatever, um, which would, you know, which would be, uh, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. a lifelong process. Um, but they're coming into their adulthood and they, you know, and they have some struggles and they have some issues from my early parenting, but they have also watched me grow, learn, learn to say, I'm sorry. I recognize what I did was so harmful. Let me, you know, it's okay for you to be mad at me. That's okay. But let me also, you know, give your experience validity because, you know, I recognize the part that I played in that. And let me help you get the resources that you need and give you words and help you understand at least like, wow, some of the stuff that you're experiencing as you're transitioning into adulthood, like there is a reason why you are responding in the ways that you are like, here's some resources yeah. to help you understand how that comes from me, you know, learning my way as a young mom, but they also have 20, you right. know, two years of right. watching me continue to keep trying and growing and being this transparent and, and work the, in the progress. The transparency part of it is just, is just so, so key. It's so key. Um, as we wrap up, if there were, I don't know, one or two things that you could leave our audience with in terms of how we can navigate these times um, that seem to be so painful on so many levels for so many of us, based upon your experiences and um just knowing where you've come from and, and how you've grown, what, what would those, what would you say to, to give us some hope? Um, really focus on connection, uh, connecting with the people in your life, in your community, in your family, risk connection, prioritize connection choose vulnerability be courageous to be transparent uh and to share even if it's just on your social media if your social media is only all these great things that you do choose to post something that you're really afraid of somewhere where you failed something that you've struggled with um be courageous in sharing that stuff because there's definitely Someone who needs to hear that and needs an opportunity to be allowed to feel vulnerable as well. And then I, I, I also think, um, I mean, and I'm really immersed because I work with people who are, you know, who are still inside uh, hate and violence based movements, helping them transition out, helping them, you know, as they're still grappling. Um, I monitor lots of stuff online and do a lot of this work. So I'm very immersed in what can seem like a very hopeless uh, situation. Um, but I believe that. We have a moral compulsion to hope that there are billions of dollars spent trying to divide us and make us hopeless people. 
because hopeless people are easily exploited. They're easily manipulated. It's easy to get them to vote and act against their own best interests. And if we choose hope and we weaponize our hope and that we hold fast to the hope and belief that things can and will get better, then we fight those powers of darkness. And when you are struggling to believe that systemic change is possible, hold on to my story, hold on to my face, and know that if you know of such a broken and imperfect vessel as me can transform my life and commit to that ongoing transformation until my last breath, then we can all have hope that the system that we live in can change and don't be dissuaded from hope. I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, for sharing yourself with me as well. Well, thank you. And thanks to our audience for watching and listening and giving our guests permission to speak and for listening with an open mind. See you next time.